You're listening to a sermon preached at First Baptist Church in Farwell, Texas. We are committed to loving God, loving people, and going into the world to share the gospel. We pray you find this message both challenging and encouraging. This morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We are going to look at the epic story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We read in Acts chapter 9 of a man named Saul who would very quickly become Paul, as we find in our text this morning. This is an epic conversion story. About 18 years ago, Kim and I had a front row seat to watch a drug addict fall in love with Jesus for the very first time. This man was rough. He was wild. Um, He did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. He went wherever he wanted to go, and he lived his life always on the edge. We, as, as a family, we never knew when this man was going to come around. At, at some Christmases, he might show up out of nowhere, and, and, and he was just uh, skin and bones, just rough looking, and, and you might not hear from him for another six months or maybe a year, and you just never knew where this man was going to be. But about 18 years ago, he began to go to church Because he was invited by his girlfriend. And this drug addict, this wild reprobate was was, uh, starting to attend church and starting to enjoy the music. And and because this man grew up in a cultural Christian uh, atmosphere, because he grew up in the Bible Belt, he he began to be convicted over some of his sins. Like his first conviction was, he thought it was probably a bad idea to smoke a joint in the church parking lot. You see, that was normally his thing. He would wake up in the morning, and he would smoke a joint, and he would smoke all the way to church, and and he would finish it in the church parking lot, and he'd go in, and and he would enjoy the music and get through the preaching, and then he'd go out, and immediately he would light up another joint and smoke it on the way home. But as he began to hear the gospel through the songs, as he began to hear the gospel preached, he began to be convicted more and more and more. And one day he came to that place where he said, you know, it's probably a good idea for me not to do this in the church parking lot. Fast forward a few years, and this man, who is Kim's brother, came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was dead, but now he is alive in Jesus Christ. He is one of the whosoever believes in him will not perish. And his life was radically changed. 20 years ago, he was a drug addict on death's door. And today, I am proud to tell you, he is serving on staff at a church in his hometown as a local missions pastor. I'm telling you, God can save the wildest of the wild. He can save the roughest of the rough. He can save the ones who hate Christianity. 
And I believe some of us have been a Christian for so long that we have forgotten that Jesus saves. And here's my prayer for this message this morning. God, would you elevate our view and our belief in your power to convert someone to Christianity? That's my prayer. That God would elevate our view and our belief that God has the power to take someone who is living in rebellion, someone who is going the opposite direction, that God would pursue them and change them for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I, I just, before we get into the Scripture, before we get too deep into this, I just feel a need to, to, to pray. God, I, I pray for Christians who are watching this, who know someone who's lost, and they have stopped praying for them because they're just tired of praying and not seeing the fruit. God, would you reinvigorate their prayers? Would you breathe a fresh wind into their belief that you can save that person? Father, I pray for those that are watching that maybe even feel they're on the other end. They're, they, they feel like you, you won't save them. That they have prayed and they've they have asked, but yet there's not been a change in their life. God, I pray that they would ask. They would surrender their life to you. That they would, they would not ask you to be a part of their current lifestyle, but they would ask you to change them for your honor and for your glory. God, would you help them to believe that they can be changed. God, I pray that as we study your word, that it would be solidified into our mind that, God, you love to see lost people surrender their life to you. God, you love to see people who hate you, who hate everything about you, who hate everything about the church, about the mission of the church. God, I, I know that you love them and you want to see them come to faith in you. So God, help us believe that and continue to pray for the lost in our families, the lost in our schools, in our places of employment, the lost in our community, the lost that, that, are, that are in our hobbies, in our free time. God, I pray that, that you would just reinvigorate a desire to see lost people come to faith in you. It's in your son's precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, major before and after meeting Christ stories like the one I told you about Kim's brother remind us that no one is so bad that he is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. God can change the most hardened sinners. 
the vilest of men and women and turn them into great ambassadors of the kingdom. And such transformation is called conversion. And in Acts chapter 9, we're going to dig in here in just a moment. In Acts chapter 9, we read of perhaps the most famous conversion in the history of Christianity. It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It's actually one of the most important events aside from Jesus' resurrection in the history of the world. It is this remarkable conversion of a man named Saul. So grab your Bibles, Acts chapter 9. Let's dig in. Listen to what it says. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, Now Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against, listen to this, against disciples of the Lord. If we were living in that day, Saul would hate us. He would be breathing out threats to have us arrested, to have us, uh, have us murdered, possibly to have us stoned to death, just like Stephen was. It says this, he went to the high priest, and he, re- this is Saul, Saul goes to the high priest, and he requests letters from the high priest to go to the synagogues in Damascus. Note that location, note that city, because it's going to be important here in just a second. He requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if Saul found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul has gone to the chief priest, to the highest religious authority, and he's saying, give me the right, give me the authority to arrest people who are following Jesus Christ. The, the, the term Christianity hasn't, hadn't been invented yet. No one was be calling Christians Christians yet. He, they were calling them people of the way. Where You remember in John chapter uh, 4, I believe, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so he is saying, he said, I want to find people who are of the way, who, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I want to arrest them, and I want to bring them back to Jerusalem. If you remember what happened in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 7, if you just go back just a little ways, Acts chapter 7, in Jerusalem, Stephen is arrested, and at the end of Stephen's sermon, at the end of Stephen's Message, if you will, proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul and all of the chief priests and the Sadducees, they take Saul out to the edge of town and they stone him to death. This is what Saul wants. He wants a written execution order for anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Let's go on. In verse 3, it says, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, in other words, he is, he is very close to getting to the place where there are a lot of Christians, and he, he's, he has these, this arrest warrant, if you will. He's very close to the synagogues in Damascus. And it says this, A light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5 says this, 
Paul answers, who are you, Lord? Who? There, there is a lot of confusion in Saul's response. Saul, this is Saul's own testimony in Acts chapter 16 and also in Acts chapter 22. This was midday. The sun is at its very brightest. And a light brighter than the sun comes on Saul and it arrests Saul's soul. And he knows that something out of the ordinary is happening. And he makes this statement. Who are you? Lord, this is, this is more than just this is more than, than Saul just, just saying. He's, he's, he's not just giving um, a, a nice greeting, if you will. He's not just recognizing this is someone of authority that I ought to greet as Lord. He recognizes that there is deity involved. That the light that, so, that has so arrested him is something more than what anybody can explain. And Saul's immediate response was a fearful recognition that this has to be deity. This has to be something that no one has ever experienced before. His, his worst imaginable nightmare would have to be to discover that Jesus is the Messiah. And here he is face to face with Jesus. His worst nightmare is that Christianity is true. His worst nightmare is that the gospel, the good news of the death, burial, and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ is God's truth. And he had been fighting against God. And God says here, or Jesus says here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want, you to, I want you to see this just as a side note. We're going to get to some observations here in just a moment. I'm going to share eight different observations from our text. But before we get there, I want you to see this. When we're being persecuted, it's not against you. It is against your Savior, Jesus Christ. Our persecutors could care less about us. Listen, if you want to hurt a mama, hurt her children. You want to hurt a dad? Hurt his son. Hurt his daughter. You want to hurt, hurt his wife? You want to really make a mom and dad mad? Hurt his grandchildren. Mm. <laughs> Listen, Satan could care less about you and I. We're trash to him. What he wants is to get to God. And Jesus says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. There he is. He says it again. I am Jesus Christ. Oh, you didn't believe in me, but you saw me being crucified. You saw me being buried, and here I am. I am the Messiah. Look at verse 6. Jesus says to him, to Saul, but get up and go into the city. I want, you to get, I want you to go to Damascus. You had plans on going to Damascus? Let's go to Damascus. And you will be told what you must do. Notice the shift. Saul was going to Damascus 
to tell the Christians what they must do. Jesus arrests Saul's soul, and now Jesus is telling Saul what he must do. Look at verse 7. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand. Here's this once mighty and powerful man who had the arrest warrant from the chief priest to go and arrest all of the Christians in Damascus. He is now humbled. He is now having to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus. Verse 9. He's, uh, he was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Let's go on to verse 10. There was a disciple... Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Now, don't rush past that. A disciple in Damascus... A disciple who is a learner, who is a, uh, a, a student of Jesus Christ, a believer that Jesus is the Messiah, who is in a city called Damascus. Guess what? He is enemy number one to Saul. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called straight the Lord said to him to the house of Judah and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he is praying there in a vision he he being Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight you see what's happening here Saul is in Damascus. He has been arrested by Jesus Christ. His, he, is, he is not eating. He's not drinking. He is blind. And he is praying for the first time to the one true God. God calls Ananias and he says, Ananias, I have a mission for you. I want you to go to this address. I want you to go to the house of Judas. And I just not... Judas Iscariot is another Judas. I want you to go to this house. I want you to go to this address. And there's a man there. Now, now just put yourself in Ananias' sandals for a second. What, what, would it, what would that have been like if God is calling you to do that exact same thing? My response would probably be a whole lot like Ananias. Look at verse 13. Lord? I'm quite certain that's how he said it. Like, like you, you ever watch the Monday Night Countdown, Monday Night Football, Monday Night Countdown? They have a saying on there. It's called, come on, man. <laughs> it's like, come on, God. Haven't you heard of this man named Saul? Hey, don't, you, I mean, have you, don't you know what Saul is doing? Come on, God. Have you ever... Have you ever had those come on God moments like God is caught, you're reading in Scripture and, and it says something like, uh, uh, forgive those who have trespassed against you. And you read a little devotional and it says, if someone has harmed you or someone has done you wrong, someone has cost you dearly, you're to forgive them. 
even if they've not asked for forgiveness. I mean, it's one of those times where we're like, come on, God. Like, are you, are you serious? That's Ananias. Ananias says, Lord? And then he gives him three excuses of why this is a bad idea. And just again, just a little bit of a side note. God could have, at that moment, said, Ananias, do you remember Jonah? <laughs> I, I, I told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh he didn't want to go, so, so I sent this very large fish to swallow him up. But God doesn't do that. Oh, there's so much grace here. Lord Ananias answered, here's three excuses. I've heard from many people about this man. Saul has been in Damascus for three days. And you know, Damascus is a lot like any old town that, that you live in. The rumor mill is flying. Like everybody's talking about this Saul of Tarsus is in our town. I mean, the virus has hit our town. And Lord, you want me to go over there? Let me, let me give you some excuses why that's a bad idea. I've heard from many people about this man. Saul doesn't, or Ananias doesn't even say Saul's name. There's so much fear. Excuse number two. I've heard how much harm he has done. And listen to the little, um, uh, uh, to, to the, to the add-on to that. How much harm he has done to your saints, Lord, in Jerusalem. In other words, Lord, don't, don't you remember about Stephen? I mean, it wasn't that long ago Stephen was being stoned to death and, and Saul was right there as they, were, as they were throwing their coats off so they could get a better throw with the rocks. Saul was right there just, just holding their coats for them. And he's now, he's in our town, Lord. Here's the third excuse, verse 14. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. Um, Lord, that's me, Ananias is saying. You want me to go to this house where Saul is at. He is breathing out murderous threats. He has an arrest warrant for me, and you want me to go there. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man... Ananias, as you have called him, you won't even call him by name, for this man, which is Saul, is my, oh, this is a key word, chosen instrument. Can, can, you, can you imagine what God is doing here? God is saying that this man who was once a murderer against Christians is my, and has been, my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, to kings and Israelites, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Love, verse 17, Ananias went, and he entered the house. He placed his hands. Let's see. He entered his house. Watch this. He placed his hands on Saul 
And he said, Brother Saul. Ananias has a mission from God. He has a belief in God. He believes that God has the power to change. And he calls Ananias his brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, Saul regained his strength. What a epic story of conversion. But before we get to these eight observations, I just want, again, on a side note, I want you to see this because maybe... Just possibly, maybe, you're watching here today and you, you feel like you're a little bit like Saul. Like, like you're too far gone to be saved. Here's what I want you to see. Go back up to verse, um, go back up to verse 14. I want you to notice something. God knows right where you are. Notice this, verse 14 Get up, Ananias, and go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judah, Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. Listen, God knows your present situation. He knows exactly where you are sitting. He knows exactly what's on your heart. He knows exactly what you are doing. He knows your present. But I also want you to know this. He knows your past. He knows Saul's past. Look at, look at verse 12. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And Ananias gives those three reasons why he shouldn't go, those three excuses. And God says, I know. I know he's past. But I also want you to know this. I know he's past. I know he's present, and I also want you to know I am preparing his future. Listen, you might be sitting there today watching this on Facebook or YouTube or however, and you might be afraid to think that God might know your past. Oh, he knows your past, but he knows your past, and he is preparing your future. He loves you, and he wants you to give your life. He wants you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Let's look at the eight observations. There's eight observations that we can make in our text. And I'm going to go through these. I'm not going to spend just a whole lot of time on each one of them. I'm going to go pretty quick through them. Number one, the first observation that we can make through this story, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, is this. Salvation is by God's amazing grace. That's number one. Salvation is by God's amazing grace. The good news of the gospel is that God pursues sinners. Don't, don't miss that in our text. God is pursuing sinners. Saul was not on a quest to find salvation. That moment, that morning when Saul woke up, he was not looking for Jesus Christ. He was looking for followers of Christ. He was on a hunt to, to persecute Christians. Yet God arrested his soul 
by His sovereign grace. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Just write this down on a notepad or in the margin of your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am. This is, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. The, the, the saved Saul, now Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you think it's possible that the early church was praying for God's protection from men like Saul? They'd heard about him. They knew that he was part of the stoning of Stephen. They, they knew that he was part of the, 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 uh, the religious elite. And they knew he wanted to take out Christians. They knew that he was breathing out these murderous threats. Is it possible that the early church, wherever they were at, were praying for Saul? Maybe their prayer was something like this. Save him, Lord. Or take him out. Lord, would you save him? Or would you take him out? But would you protect us from him one way or the other? I said this last week, and I believe this ought to be our desire. May our desire for the grace of God be stronger than our desire for the wrath of God to be poured out on sinners. I think sometimes, Christians, we can, get so, we can get so caught up in the media, we can get so caught up in everything that's going on that we just want the wrath of God. We want to be like the sons of thunder when we are rejected or when Christianity is rejected, and we just want to call down lightning bolts on them. Listen, may our desire for the grace of God be stronger than our desire for the wrath of God to be poured out on sinners. Listen, was for Christ. Christ was pursuing Saul. Listen, I want to tell you, when I was saved at 10 years old, I, 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 I'm quite certain that Sunday morning when I got up, I, I probably did not want to go to church. I was probably that regular 10-year-old that was like, oh, come on, let's, let's stay home today. Let's not go. Let's, you know, I, don't, I don't want to go and blah, 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 all the excuses. But praise God, my family took me. And at 10 years old, I heard the gospel. And it wasn't a radical conversion like Saul's to Paul. Matter of fact, it was actually seemed just the story of it is pretty boring. I was I was later on that afternoon after church. I was my mom was loading or unloading the dishwasher, and I was standing next to her, and I asked her about how to how to become a Christian. Listen, I wasn't going to church that Sunday looking for Jesus, but Jesus was pursuing me, and thank God I heard the gospel that day. And I accepted Jesus Christ. Observation number two. All conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. All conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. What is your conversion story? Some people have a dramatic Paul-like story of their salvation experience. God has arrested you on your journey. Others have very quiet stories, much like what I just shared about mine. They heard the gospel and they accepted Jesus as their Savior. But the one consistent truth is this. All, biblical, all true biblical, biblical conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. 
Listen, it doesn't matter if you have a dramatic testimony or a simple hearing and believing testimony. Here is the truth. You were dead, now you are alive. Listen, that, listen Saul was dead. He might have been walking, he might have been breathing, but he was, as some have said, a dead man walking. Before you accepted Jesus Christ, you was a dead man, a dead young woman, or dead woman, but now you are alive. In Jesus Christ. Oh, the song that we sing, that old hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Observation number three. Number one, salvation is by God's amazing grace. Number two, all conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Number three, all conversions involve a surrender to Jesus Christ. Listen, Saul thought he was righteous. He thought that he could earn God's favor by keeping the law. But the reality is he was walking in spiritual darkness until he came face to face with Jesus. Listen, Saul came humbly into Damascus. He humbly surrendered to the sovereign Lord. This is what he tells us that we should do in Colossians chapter 1. Just write this down again in the, in the margin of your Bible or on a piece of note paper. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. Now let's don't don't let it slip your mind that this is Paul writing. This is the converted Saul writing this. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Saul would have never said that. He thought he was walking in the light. He thought he was walking in righteousness. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Observation number four. Sincerity alone doesn't save. Listen, don't this don't miss this one. Sincerity alone will not save. Saul was no doubt sincere in his belief. The only problem was he was sincerely wrong. He was passionate. And what he believed. Listen, I don't think there was anyone else as passionate about Saul. Saul wasn't just content with, 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 uh, with getting rid of the Christians in Jerusalem. Saul wanted to chase them down. Saul wanted to go wherever the Christians were at and wipe them off the planet. He didn't want anyone proclaiming Jesus was the Messiah. He was sincere. He was passionate in what he believed. Listen, we live in a culture today that values sincerity and passion but could care less about the subject matter of that sincerity and passion. We must, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must reject the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe in, just be sincere in whatever it is. Listen, we must throw that out the door. We must reject that when it comes into our thought pattern. Parents, listen, please do not say this to your children. 
Listen, just be passionate. Whatever you want to believe, just be passionate. Whatever you want to trust in, just be sincere in that. No, 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 listen. You can be sincere, you can be passionate, but you will passionately and sincerely be wrong unless that belief is in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, again, from the Apostle Paul's own lips, from his own pen, listen to what he says. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Verse 2, he says, I can testify uh, about them that they have zeal for God. There's sincerity, there's passion. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempt to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Saul is basically writing about himself before he accepted Jesus Christ. He knows this very well because he walked this own own path. And now he's saying about those who have yet to give their life to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we looked at it several weeks ago. There is salvation in no, other, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven people by which we must be saved. Observation number 5. Conversion involves receiving of the Spirit. Listen, I could go for a series of sermons on just this one topic, but let me just quickly say, at the moment of salvation, you receive all of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when Jesus came, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't say to the disciples, just follow a little bit of me. He said, no, follow all of me. Take up your cross and follow me. Listen, when when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, it wasn't just a a little bit of the Holy Spirit. It was all of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you can't get part of a whole. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, not a force. He is a person of the Trinity, and at the moment of salvation, you get all of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, the latter part of verse 9 says then says this, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So listen, conversion involves receiving the Spirit. Observation number 6 we make from our text is this, God can save the worst of sinners. Oh, this is good news. God can save the worst of sinners. Some people think the least likely person to be converted to faith in Jesus is someone who hates Christianity. And Acts chapter 9 should put that thought to rest. Listen, Saul hated Christianity. And here's what's interesting about Saul. He would have liked Jesus if Jesus would have came for the spiritually elite only. He would have liked that type of Messiah But Jesus didn't come just for the Sadducees. He didn't come just for the Pharisees. He came for the Gentiles. That's you and I. And he came for the religious elite. Oh, God, this has been my prayer. God, would you elevate our view and our belief in your power to convert someone to Christianity? Maybe we should say it like this. God, I believe you can save, and you fill in the blank. God, I believe that you can save 
but help my unbelief. God can save the worst of sinners. No one has outrun the grace of Jesus Christ. Listen, as long as that person has air in their lungs and blood running through their veins, God can save them. And may you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, stand in the gap and continue to pray that God would pursue them and that their heart would be softened, that they would come into contact with the gospel, that someone would walk into their path and share the gospel, that they would, that they would come with us to church or sit down at a, at, a, at, a, at a computer screen and watch a service and hear the gospel. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Observation number seven is this. When you become a new person, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, you also receive a new purpose. When you become a new person in Jesus Christ, you also receive a new person, a purpose. All Christians are sent on mission. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. We have a mission. If you are a Christian, you are a chosen instrument in the hands of God to be used for his mission. Think about that. You are an instrument. I wanted to say you're a tool in the hands of God, but that kind of sounds bad. God wants to use you. Yes, you. Listen, if God can use my brother-in-law, I'm telling you, God can use you. If God can use me, then God can use you. You are an instrument in the hands of God. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20 is, is fleshing out. Write this down in Acts chapter 9. Just write it down somewhere in the margin. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given, watch this, us, that's anyone who is in Christ. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a ministry. What is that? A ministry of reconciling people to Christ. To, to, being, to being an instrument of proclaiming the gospel, of living out the gospel, of sharing the love of Jesus Christ. You have that ministry. Verse 19 says this, That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has, watch this, as he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The message that Jesus Christ was proclaiming is the message that we must proclaim as well, as well with our words and with our life. Verse 20 of, of, um, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors. We are spokesmen for Jesus Christ. We do not live our life the way we want to live our life. We live our life the way He wants us to live our life. Our life is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Our voice is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Our, our resources are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Listen, God is making His appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Listen, when you become a new person in Jesus Christ, you now have a new purpose in life, and that is to live on mission. Observation number eight. This is what we, but let me back up to number seven, because this is what we see in Ananias. 
Ananias loved God. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was part of this new body of believers called the way. And Jesus calls him on mission. As far as we know, that's Ananias' first mission trip. Can you imagine your first mission trip is to go to someone who has an arrest warrant for you? He has an arrest warrant in one hand and a rock in the other hand. He says, come on. <laughs> and God says, I want you to go to that person. Ananias kind of falters a little bit at first with his excuses. Listen to the patience of God. God, God listens. And then God says, go. Just like he's given us the commandment to go. Okay. Observation number eight. Conversion involves receiving a new family. This is what's so hard about this season that we're in with this demonic virus. It has separated the family. He says this. Ananias says this to Saul. He doesn't say to him, you religious Sadducee, get up. No, 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 what does he say? Brother, there's love, there's compassion, and there's connection in that statement. Brother Saul, listen, as Christians, it should be a joy to participate in the mission of making him known by learning together. This is what's so hard about what we are going through. This is what is so abnormal. We can learn. Listen, it, it's not, we do not live in a day where we are short of resources to be able to find a sermon or to be able to find a Bible study or to be able to read a book. They are numerous. Not all good. Not all through to Scripture. But they're out there. Conversion involves receiving a new family, and a family spends time together. I, I've often thought of this season that we're in would be like a mom cooking for a dinner of let's say let's just just let's just go big family like ten probably a homeschool family if there's ten in the family right just kidding I love homeschool families but let's just say there's ten people in the family think of the mom who spends all day preparing a meal and she gets it cooked and it's ready and and everybody comes down one at a time and they take their meal and they go to their room and they sit and they eat their meal in their own room you would say it's not a healthy family and i can tell you one thing the mom would be really upset <laughs> if she spent all of her time preparing this huge feast and then everybody just quietly come and get it and they go to their own room. That's what we are, man, that's somewhat of what we are living in today. We're learning, but we're not together. And conversion involves receiving a new family. And there ought to be a hunger, brothers and sisters in Christ, there ought to be a hunger for us to be together, to learn together, to grow together, and to partner together in ministry. And the ultimate question that this passage invites us to ask is this. Have you truly experienced conversion? 
Have you had an encounter with Jesus? I'm not talking about a, a bright light that, that, that shines brighter than the new day sun. I'm just saying, have you come to a place where you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ? Have you truly experienced conversion? Have you surrendered to Christ in repentance and faith? Listen, without a surrender to Jesus, He is not your Lord. And if He is not your Lord, then He is not your Savior. Have you surrendered to Christ in repentance and faith? Are you saying yes to His call to serve? You have a gift. You have a skill. God is wanting to use you as an instrument for His mission. Have you said yes to that? If so, then allow the grace of God to encourage you as you live on mission. You will never meet a person that God cannot save. Listen, God saves sinners, and He wants to reach others through you, so therefore, rejoice. But listen, if you haven't surrendered to Him, then do so now. Listen, you can't use the excuse. If you've listened to this entire message, you can't use the excuse that you're too bad. Or even count on all of your religious efforts to buy your salvation. Listen, Saul had a lot of religious efforts, but it would never have bought his salvation. Look at Saul. You are just the right candidate for grace. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Repent. Repent to Him. Just tell Him your sins. Tell Him that you are sorry. And then ask Him to be your Savior. Ask Him to come into your life and to save you from your sins. He will do it. I promise you, He will do it. Ask Him to be your Savior and ask Him to be the Lord of your life. Meaning this. We don't use that word Lord much anymore. But meaning this. God, you are the boss of my life. I no longer live for self. I live for you. Listen, you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ today by repenting of your sin and asking Him to come into your life. If you have never done that, will you do that today? And then listen, for those of us who we've followers of Christ, we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but yet we just, man, our prayer for lost people has really waned. Or maybe for some of you, it, you just, you, you've not prayed for a lost person in a long time. Will you hear this prayer? God, would you elevate our view and our belief in your power to convert someone to Christianity? May that be true. May that be true of you. May it be true of me. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you'd like more information about our church or have any questions regarding the sermon you just heard, we would love to hear from you. You can visit our website at www.fbcfarwell.org or send an email to info at fbcfarwell.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching FBC Farwell. It is our prayer that the sermon you listened to was equally challenging and edifying to your walk with Christ. Thank you again for listening and have a blessed week.